so I, I think I've been able to synthesize you know, th these areas of religion, you know, kind of science, technology, politics, the whole, you know, the whole kind of broad worldview is ex exactly because I, I sort of left the system. Welcome to the light ages where we explore our potential and go off piste on the slopes of the sacred mountains. I'm Ali Amorosan. I'm seeking today's most interesting minds to help overcome what some have called the meta crisis and inviting us all to co create a protopic vision for Weltanschauung for the 21st century and beyond. I first came across the work of Wei H. Zhang in around 2012, when he released a couple of lectures on YouTube, one titled The Fractal Brain Theory and the Unification of Neuroscience with AI and Psychology, and the other called revolutionary movements and how to start one. It was clear to me that here is someone with a broad range of interests, but also the ability to arrive at novel conclusions and articulate them in a compelling manner. Wei is an independent researcher known for the fractal brain theory and has recently released a new series of lectures revealing more of his thinking on brain science, artificial intelligence, consciousness, metaphysics, and nothing less than the unification of science and religion in his fractal theory of reality. He's the author of two books, The Fractal Brain Theory and a book titled Quest, which I've not read yet, but I just want to read out the blurb for it. This book is about a 21st century mythic adventure and spiritual odyssey, a real life Dan Brown novel where science meets reality, the mystical meets the mundane, and the esoteric or hidden is made manifest. More mind-bending than the Matrix movie, and as strange as any Philip K. Dick take, this is a true story of one man's quest to understand the nature of mind, brain, and consciousness during the course of which he discovers the nature of the universe and the divine. I think this will be a very stimulating conversation. And with that, let's welcome Wei H. Zhang. So, hello, what? hello Wei. Uh, I know I didn't pronounce your name right then. Uh, did I, is that right, Way? Absolutely fine. Yeah, that sounds good, good to me. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so cool. So, so there's so many areas we could explore. Uh, we could probably go on for hours and hours. Um, uh, and I hope this doesn't jump around too much for people. Um, I've got a lot of questions to ask. So Thanks. maybe Thanks. we'll need a part two if you're up for it. Uh, I know yeah, you've yeah, said yeah. that there's uh, there's some areas that we're going to take a long time to describe so let's let's leave those for a later date if you if you want um so i'm going to be following my notes but i don't want that to stop us uh going off piste uh, and exploring some unexpected territory if we if it comes up 
great, great. So people will have heard my uh, brief introduction, but uh, could you give us a little insight into your personal background and how you came to walk the path you're on and what's unique about it? My, my personal background, what's unique, uh, Oliver, is essentially, I, I guess what's unique is that I left the system. Mm. Now, now ba basically, um, I was going to do you know, a PhD in artificial intelligence, but this is back in 1988. And uh, essentially, I kind of I deviated from the normal path. That's 30 years ago. So imagine someone actually leaves the system, you know, kind of putting yourself in academia or some corporate lab and then goes on this kind of renegade journey for 30 years he learns different things so i guess that's my unique selling point i, I guess what, what's happened is basically look I, I think i've got unique answers to many things and a lot of these things you've heard in, in the talks you've attended and the reason why i have these unique answers is because okay basically a career in an academic or corporate lab with all due respect to people working in, in academia and the corporate research uh, field it, it is basically you're putting yourself in a box this is to do with specialization. It's to do with how you know academic academia is organized. It's to do with how corporate labs are organized. You you specialize, and it's a kind of a PhD three four years. There's a narrowing narrowing of the mind, which is great for adding on some you know, addition to some existing field. But in terms of finding answers to problems which necessarily involve jumping out of the box, it's very very difficult. So I, I think I've been able to synthesize you know, these areas of religion. You know, kind of science, technology, politics—the whole, you know, the whole kind of broad worldview—is ex exactly because I, I sort of left the system, mm. and I, I kind of, in, in a sense, I, I've been lucky because I've always been at—I've um, been doing talks in London for the mm. past uh, twenty years now. In fact, the, the last talk was the twentieth anniversary, so I've been very lucky in that I, I basically had—I've always had an audience, and in a sense, basically, I've been motivated to basically generate this worldview for an audience which has been lay but very very smart do, do you see what i mean so basically i've been kind of like i've been in the process of basically uh kind of outside the system but actually also talking to people within the system also various kinds of people political people scientists technologists so i have this kind of unique path and unique angle on things and i think that is really why i'm in my situation today and why i have really unique answers to some of these really big questions i think we'll be exploring this in this interview mm, so how, how much was that a conscious decision back way way back when um when you were beginning to study <clears throat> yes i mean in a sense i mean it wasn't university it really was uh, I, I guess it was I, I sort of left the system at age 13 14 by not by, by skipping school i realized right. my, my brain has been wasted in these uh, these these classrooms where basically you just weren't learning at, at a kind of adequate rate so basically i i i discovered um in my early teens but that by actually going renegade i could actually learn far more on my own than actually going to school now now university wise i was really happy to actually you know, knuckle down and do the degree and do the phd now what happened to me that back in 1988 uh 1991 okay was essentially um the situation with artificial intelligence which was my chosen field you, you gotta understand um, it's not like mathematics or physics because uh, all the stuff that's taught in artificial intelligence back in 88, it is, it is all dustbin of history. Did you get it? 
So I, I realized uh, even back then that basically by doing this PhD path, I would have learned expert systems, support vector machines, maybe, you know, kind of like Eagle Alexander stuff, a bit of back propagation, which has had a resurgence in the past few years, but even that's going dustbin of history now, I, I believe. So by actually uh, realizing at that stage, basically, that uh, the kind of research path in artificial intelligence was a dead end, I guess it was at that point, I say before starting the degree, because the, uh, the summer before starting um, the artificial intelligence degree, basically I read up, read up on all, all the stuff and I realized the state of the art, what was being taught in universities, was really like a dead end. So I guess it began there. And that's mm. the, where my research into the brain and artificial intelligence really began, separate from mm. the kind of academic path. Yeah, amazing. Um, so your work seems to cover quite a wide range of disciplines from theology, consciousness, neuroscience, to AI, and even activism. So if, if there's a goal to your work, what is it? Interesting question. I mean, I have to answer this in two stages because the original goal, uh, Oliver, the original goal was to create true artificial intelligence and become the next Steve Jobs. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds... <laughs> You're, you're kind of a very ambitious teenager and you kind of like, you know, you feel you have this confidence that you could master subjects on your own, that you always did well in school, even though you never went to school. You always came, you know, top of the exams with very little work. You had this kind of confidence to do stuff. And I guess now people want to become the next Elon Musk now, don't they? But back then, back in the 80s, it was like you become the next Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. And the original plan was basically figure out how the brain works, <clears throat> create true artificial intelligence from it, and then basically become the next Steve Jobs. And that sounds really kind of like uh, really uh, maybe overconfident, but I had, I had this kind of like teenage energy, which really, uh, it, was, it, it, it just seemed totally doable to me. And that sounds maybe even slightly arrogant to, to, to talk like that. What happened was in my deviant path, it became very deviant. And basically I left the system and uh, ended up in this really kind of like, uh, I guess, renegade situation living in North London's kind of, <laughs> counterculture degenerate underbelly in a land of psychedelia land of kind of you know kind of like bohemian life musicianship i played in bands and stuff did music thing and the whole kind of psychedelic thing really um gave me this kind of insight um i, I kind of I, I guess i i don't want to sound uh i guess it's like a spiritual awakening you have these experiences on these substances like many people have done you know in recent history and then it was this experience of being one of the universe or being one with God. And uh, by the, my late 20s, the work on the brain and the AI's work still continued, but there was a wider agenda. And then, you know, this thing called Saturn Return, I used to laugh at these old hippies talking about Saturn Return, that you're in the late 20s, you're going to find out what you're going to do the rest of your life. And there really, really was this kind of like Saturn Return reckoning of kind of like, you know, what am I going to do? Then I realized the higher goal became to communicate these experiences communicate this experience of being one of the universe one with god so but that became the higher goal but then the uh the work with the ai stuff continued over time I, I guess the goal now is then now to basically create true artificial intelligence commercialize it bring it into the world and use that as a platform for communicating the religious ideas and then in turn use that as a platform to, con to continue uh, to communicate the, as you say, the activists, I guess, political ideas. I guess mm. that's the long-term overall goal. And that sounds like uh, pretty wacky and, uh, you know, far-fetched, but that is uh, what, what we're doing. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because uh, you're sort of combining this, um, the, this idea of uh, 
progress in in science and AI with this activist edge, and like you say, there is a there is a political side to it, and that's often hidden in the agendas of you know people who are making progress in technology although it's always there underlying and we're left to infer what that might be and you're being quite open and transparent about hey this is this is what i'm about you know this is uh this is the wide-ranging um scope of my of my work which is uh, really refreshing i think right right i mean the, the thing is in my journey once you have this truth it kind of really just seared into your brain this kind of esoteric I guess religious spiritual idea that I kind of picked up really from the land of the lotus eaters. I mean, I'm quite open about this from my, my my journeys in the land of psychedelia. Then, as my journey, I was giving all these talks in London, and basically, uh, <clears throat> I, I, I'd see the deep connection between uh, you know this, this esoteric dimension and politics. You know, political scientists they, they recognise that there is this deep esoteric dimension, but they can't go there. So they recognise. You know, Plato's Republic, the most influential political text of all time, there's an esoteric dimension. Philosopher King leaves the cave of illusions, returns to the cave, leads society to the good. That's, that's, that's mystical dimension. We, we can go on, oration on the dignity of man, you know, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, of course, the Bible's influence on, on the Western world, etc. You know, Hegel, Marx. Well, what, what, what happened for me personally is that basically in my journey, I've always been very interested in politics. I, I, I joined all the dots. So I read up on all these revolutionary movements in all of China, all these different parts of the world over the past thousand years. And I found this esoteric dimension. And then I investigated the roots of uh, kind of like our political systems. Again, I found this kind of like esoteric foundation and core from which they were derived. So, so I guess um, by, by synthesizing this knowledge, then I realized, oh my God, I had a, a unique insight, which basically uh, many people don't have. So, and uh, it was from giving these talks uh, to kind of uh, movements like Occupy from, from way, way back now, 10, 12 years ago, that I found a ready audience for my political ideas as well. So that, that became like an offshoot. But in recent years, that's really grown. Uh, so the most recent talk I gave was really about uh, what everyone's asking. What is that new worldview? What is that new narrative that can really, you know, cause the system change or some kind of great reset or some kind of revolution to happen and, uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, so, so I guess uh, the, the political stuff really came out of the esoteric dimension and it became a, a kind of like a, another kind of emergent sub goal from the religious goal and the technological goal. Mm. Yeah, great. Well, so, okay. So without jumping ahead then, let's, should we, is your fractal brain theory a good place to start or or is okay. there a better place to jump in to uh to to the to the technical technical side of it that's a great place because because really uh i guess where most of my life has gone the past 30 years is reading neuroscience so deciding that uh, the existing ways of thinking artificial intelligence were just inadequate they basically were wrong i decided that at age 18 then um, the path for me became uh, true AI would be created from a true understanding of the brain and through neuroscience. So that really led to, you know, kind of like the, my, my investigations into the brain and, and became this um, kind of fractal brain theory. Now, this is just, it's just a, a kind of label, really. I mean, what it is, is really the application of this key idea called symmetry to understanding the brain. So, so symmetry really is the kind of, uh, if you had to sum up science in one word, then that word should be symmetry, really. It's about, you know, kind of decomposing vast areas of complexity into very succinct, 
mathematical objects. That's what essentially symmetry is, invariant objects with shapes that can describe a whole host of things. It's a, that's a kind of layman's accessible description uh, of it, symmetry. Yeah, so is, 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 is symmetry synonymous with, with the concept of the equation? Like, you know, the equals and, and, and you know, it's symmetry uh, because, because it, they're equal on both sides. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I guess it goes, I mean, you know, there's, a, there's an equality uh, equation where two things on separate sides of the equation will, will be, seem vastly different. But that's a, that's a kind of deeper kind of mathematical symmetry. It, to keep things uh, kind of accessible, uh, symmetry is really about like, like, a, like it's about transformation and invariance. Okay, okay, you can do transformations with mathematical equations and uh, there'd be like what's called invariance. Now you can take a shape if you if you, if you transform it in certain ways then it then it looks the same you know the classic school example you get a square you kind of rotate it 90 degrees and it still looks like a square rotate it 180 degrees it still looks like a square you take a square you flip it in the mirror uh you know and then it's, 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 it's a square it's to really in the broadest possible terms to explain symmetry is really about transformation and invariance Okay, something is transformed, but something is immune to that transformation. So something is, is changed, but something stays the same. So in broad, broadest possible terms, that, that is symmetry and invariance. Now, the idea of symmetry as applied to the brain is the idea that the complexity, the, the stupendous complexity of the brain, uh, the brain is stupendously complex. It's the idea that there is an underlying utter simplicity behind that complexity. So that's, that's symmetry. There's a basic shape, if you like. A basic pattern, a basic template that explains the entire brain. Now, the idea of fractal is essentially another way of saying fractal is self-similarity or self-symmetry, a recursively nested pattern that's the same. Okay, so what we believe is that the fractal brain theory is essentially describing a single symmetry or pattern that really explains you know, even synapses to neurons to cortical columns to patches of the brain to the entire brain. So essentially a single symmetry that deco decomposes the entire brain. I know, I know people think that's, that, that sounds completely wild until they realize, okay, that the, the brain, your mind, your entire life actually emanates from a single unbroken symmetry. It's called a fertilized egg. Once you realize that, the, the idea is not so ridiculous, is it? Mm. And as humans, obviously, we are symmetrical. The brain has two halves, um, and it, and it, but it goes further than that, right? Exactly, yes, exactly. I mean, I mean the... Uh, well, actually, the, the fractal brain theory now has gone far, far further because actually the next talk I'll be giving uh, in about a month's time, I'll, I'll you know, share some links at the end of this talk. The fractal brain theory became something far more in the past 10 years, actually, since, since my first outings on, on satellite TV and videos came out about, about 10, 12 years ago. What the brain theory shows now is not merely a symmetry decomposing the brain and mind, this symmetry also decomposes how the genome works. Now, the genome is basically, uh, you know, what, what's in a fertilized egg that computes a body. Okay, basically, a fertilized egg becomes a body through ontogenesis. The fractal brain theory has become something far, far deeper. It shows a symmetry between a brain and a genome. And that sounds wild, doesn't it? Hmm. And it, it, further than that, it's, it shows a symmetry between what we understand as life and intelligence. Now, Einstein's famous E equals MC squared. I mean, basically, he wanted to call the theory of relativity invariance theory because it basically showed an invariance or symmetry between matter and energy. I know it sounds really like a, like a bold claim, but this is something I can, I can explain in minute detail. is the idea, basically, just as matter and energy are fundamental properties of the universe, 
and there's a symmetry between them. You know, as Einstein's famous theory has, has demonstrated, that's why we have nuclear nuclear power and stuff, and you know, all these kind of like uh, technologies from this equation. The, the fractal brain theory has become something far deeper. It shows a symmetry between the fundamental properties of the universe, life, and intelligence. So there's a symmetry between. Uh, this this sounds I know it sounds it sounds uh, implausible, but taking into account the latest cutting edge knowledge in neuroscience and genomics, I can show a fundamental symmetry, an invariance, a sameness, if you like, between a neuron and a gene and its gene regulatory mechanisms. A fundamental symmetry between neuronal networks and gene regulatory networks, a fundamental symmetry between a genome and the brain, ontogenesis, thought and behavior, evolution, learning, and creativity. So that's what the theories be become. And uh, so, so this is very exciting. And I think this is really what you need. Okay, the implication of this theory, I mean, implication of equal sensitivity nuclear power, it's nuclear weapons, is basically the idea that you can um, you know, take energy and form matter. The implication of this theory is true artificial intelligence. Yeah, interesting. So, <clears throat> so how does the fractal brain theory lead to a theory of, of reality? And do you call it? Do you call it that a fractal theory of reality, or, or something like that? Because you, you go further in your well, well yes, I mean, your theory. I mean, the the really powerful idea uh, it, it goes further. It's not just a unified theory of life and intelligence. It goes far, far further because this uh, unified theory of brain, genome, life, intelligence symmetry extrapolates from a physical, biological organism. It extrapolates to the universe. Now, this notion of uh, the universe as a giant brain, the universe as a giant organism. I know this. I know it's the stuff of sci-fi, but it's actually what many scientists think anyway. That you know, you know, like uh, uh, Freeman Dyson imagines that the universe is one overarching intelligence, like a giant brain that somehow passes it for all understanding. It's an old idea. It's, it's the idea of a universal Vishnu, a cosmic Christ, a, uni, a kind of you know, a celestial Buddha that the entire universe becomes this single organism. And it's also the idea of microcosm as macrocosm. Once you have a completely symmetrical fractal theory of body and brain, that perfectly extrapolates to this notion of the universe as a body and brain. Did you get it? And the, the idea that, uh, you know, what, what scientists are finding already is these fractal structures that in, in the universe. So it's a simple extrapolation from this theory into the universe. And it, I think it presents a very compelling picture of cosmology once you uh, understand that life and intelligence are such fundamental aspects of its existence and the way this uh, theory is framed in terms of symmetry and what's called discrete mathematics it really is fundamental then it gives a, a kind of more power to the idea that somehow somehow uh, life and intelligence really is fundamental to the universe and then this extrapolation of the theory to the universe is something many people have been kind of like expecting anyway yeah i think people might be familiar with you know the often on social media you'll see a comp uh the comparing of say a, a neuron and the structure of, of the, the the universe um and so we you can you can show similarity between uh neurons and um the uh the higher structure of the universe the the, the linaikea uh right, right. Uh, structure you know the um yeah, yeah, yeah. Our local, our local uh, domain in the universe, um, and so you're saying that we can we can look at those images, and 
there's there's more than just a kind of metaphorical uh way to interpret that it's like that's pointing us to something that's very real and it goes beyond um just matter as it were it goes beyond uh space and time into something more fundamental yes completely um, i mean uh, you know the notion that somehow the, the the planet earth gaia will become intelligent will become conscious and that you know galaxies uh, as life extends out into galaxies that becomes integrated into a unit that becomes like an organism organism and becomes conscious etc so it's kind of like a, a kind of a, a kind of concentric nested russian dolls model of the universe all these kind of like intermediate stages you know with this fractal fear of the brain with a fractal universe it becomes organized into kind of recursively nested conscious entities and and uh, you know in, in, ter in terms of the entire universe it really gives a kind of overarching structure for the universe no no, no these uh, simulations of the universe that provide these kind of neuron like structures it sounds kind of uh, superficial but other papers show that the dynamics happening across kind of like a vast universal scales actually like have parallels to like dynamics of neuronal interactions and also the dynamics of kind of say say internets and local area networks so the the, the idea that then this process of body brain mind extrapolates to the universe it's it's kind of like a lot of research is converging to the area anyway what, what this theory gives is a kind of overarching kind of, I guess, way of grouping all these separate ideas together into some unified whole, I believe. Mm. Yeah. So, so let's, let's, let's stay on that for a second. The, the, uh, the idea of, um, like you say, the, the idea of the Gaia or the earth becoming conscious right. or, or the, the galaxy or, or larger structures, the universe in itself. Yeah. Um, how literally can we take that? I mean, I forget, I forget the uh, scientist, but who proposed the newosphere, which is, you know, the idea that human uh, thoughts, consciousness, interactions, yeah. you know, the, the, the buzzing of information around the world yeah, yeah. is going to be, is, is, a, is a type of consciousness in itself. So how do you think that's kind of more um, uh, figurative or, or do you think we can sort of take that idea very literally? Uh, at varying well, well, I think, scales. I think the person you're talking about, Pierre Teller de Chardin, I think he was. That's, he was thank you. Yeah, I think he was a Jesuit priest, wasn't he? So he did, did see it in kind of like a, in kind of religious terms, and he talked. He also introduced this idea of cosmic Christ. So I, I guess there's really no difference between his ideas of a new sphere and ideas of Hegel, really, the philosopher. You know, uh, Hegel was mass has 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 a, has a bad reputation because people think he's like his ideas lead to totalitarianism, which isn't necessarily the case, and uh, often his ideas mistranslated. So, so um, one mistranslation is uh, Hegel was believed to have said that the state is the embodiment of God. Okay, no, it's something more subtle. He kind of said that because there is a God, it implies that there will be a state. It's something like that. Uh, you know, these are old ideas of uh, somehow that society is the body of Christ. That's in the Bible. The idea that a society has a kind of zeitgeist, has a kind of like a, a kind of spirit to it. And then if you think about the world society as, as a global village, and that's a very conflict-ridden global village, what's happening in the world right now. But the idea that that, that Gaia newsphere is it, a recurring idea. It's not just Pierre Teller de Chardin, it's Hegel. It's the Bible. It's really a recurring idea. When Pierre Teller de Chardin talks about the cosmic Christ, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about the universe becomes this one single entity that's conscious. 
So I think consciousness is not really uh, constrained to our physical brains. And I think, uh, you know, this idea of organizational invariance from philosophy, that uh, we can suppose that I can suppose you are conscious because my brain is like yours, you behave like me. So I can, I can suppose that your consciousness is like mine. Now, if we have a fractal theory of the brain that extrapolates to the planet, extrapolates to the universe, then we have something called, I call uh, scale invariant, organized, organizational invariance. If then the planet is organized in the same way that my brain is organized, I can, I can then also infer, if it's conscious, that that consciousness is like my consciousness. But if the, if the fractal brain extrapolates to the entire universe as also a fractal brain, then that allows me also to, to think that that consciousness is of the same kind as mine. So it leads to many, many, many uh, exciting ideas that, that uh, you know, the scale invariant, organizational invariance. It does. Um... So I, I love entertaining, you know, various theories of everything almost as a, a spiritual practice in itself. Um, so, so what level of confidence do you have that this, this theory is or could be an accurate uh, reflection of, of reality? Well, what gives, gives me confidence uh, in this theory is but really the, 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 the idea that it's really application of the, the, the simple idea of symmetry to understanding the brains and genomes. So, so what, the clever thing about the theory, it finds a way to apply the idea of symmetry to the brain and genome. Now, in terms of confidence, I really, it's really the, the comprehensiveness, its ability to, to explain and also, I guess, beauty, the fact that you capture all this complexity in a single, in a, in a single uh, kind of concept. The idea that the, I can use the same theory to understand the workings of a neuron and use the, the same conception to then understand the workings of an entire, entire person. So it's, it's the ability to unify uh, vast amounts of data from psychology and cognitive science, i.e. functioning of the entire organism, entire mind. And then map that to the functioning, perfectly map it to the functioning of a, well, the most important neuron in the brain, which is the, the cortical pyramidal cell. And then I find a correspondence to, from an entire person to the function of a neuron. And then that same concept, that same symmetry can then also extrapolate to the understanding of gene and gene regulatory networks. So it's really the, the, the power, it's comprehensiveness and it's explanatory power. But the re, what's going really going to seal the deal in terms of pushing this theory into the mainstream is its ability to unify existing ideas in artificial intelligence. So this is uh, practical applications uh, in the world of artificial intelligence, but also in computer science generally. Uh, so in terms of practical application, in terms of the ultimate, I think this theory has a fast track to becoming accepted. It's really hard to get new scientific ideas accepted. Okay, it takes, it often, you know, basically people come up with these ideas and it's accepted after they die. Now, I, I don't have that luxury because I, I, I need to basically get this idea accepted to um, use it as a platform to promote the spiritual religious message and the, and the political ideas. So I need, I need to get things done in the next five, 10 years at, at the most. The fast track for this theory becoming accepted is the creation of true AI. And the reason why I'm so confident is, is, is its ability to totally capture these really powerful algorithms that are already out there. Obviously, like things like uh, evolutionary learning, um, reinforcement learning, and but but also the, the really clever thing is that okay, I'll, I'll say something really uh, kind of quite um, that people can can totally understand in terms of technology. Okay, it, it, it kind of compactifies what I'm trying to explain. Now, now Google, okay, Google, the corporation, 
it runs on a small set of fundamental computer technologies. Okay. Okay, they are, okay, there's a search engine involved. Okay, there's a search engine and it works in a particular way. There's relational databases and it works in a certain way. There is data compression, all that YouTube video, all that stuff is data compressed. Okay, and then there's artificial intelligence machine learning. What I think, and this is a real uh, technological marvel and uh, the reason why I have confidence that this theory is right in terms of, because it's a theory of the brain, has a, you know, has a, you know basically process information is that this theory essentially unifies all those separate technologies that runs Google, data compression, artificial intelligence, machine learning, relational databases, and the search engine aspect into one succinct compact theory and one algorithm. So that's that many other reasons why, but I think it's, I think it's, it's explanatory power, but it's ability to, to basically function as a, as a technology of utility. Yeah. And I, so yeah, mentioning explanatory power, you talk about um, the way it can unify ideas about the brain, the genome, um, technology. I know that you've also spoken about um, uh, the, where it uh, can say something about physics. Now, if I, if I can go off piece a second here. Um, okay. So one, a, a sort of a, a test for a theory of everything can be its explanatory power in terms of explaining the, uh, the, 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 the paradoxes in physics or the, the questions that we have in physics. So we've got the you know, wave-particle duality, we've got things like entanglement that uh, defy a materialist or physicalist uh, explanation. So, so um, how, 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 how does your system sort of tackle those kind of questions? I think really what's missing in physics and what can really uh, sew things up and uh, even someone like Roger Penrose has suggested that, that really the answer for really, uh, you know, unpacking or really unraveling the really deep mysteries in physics, he said it would come from life science. Okay. Now he might have had microtubules in mind because he's with his pal Roger Pe um, Stuart Hameroff, they're quite into Hameroff. microtubules and might have had that in mind. I think it's far deeper because I, th I think I think basically once you have an understanding of life and intelligence and frame it in terms of this kind of really f deep theory that's really uh, kind of based on uh, certain fundamental mathematical concepts, then it introduces into the world of physics. Uh, it establishes basically life and intelligence as really being fundamental. So obviously, um, you know, the uh, questions of the anthropic principle are answered basically because it's not you know that just this universe happens to be uh, satisfactory for life uh, just because it, it wouldn't be the case there's people analyzing the universe if there's no life because it, it basically says that life is absolutely fundamental it's fundamental to the fabric of the universe but once you have that in the place and i think it solves loads of conundrums like you know they're in in, uh, in in string theory uh, kind of string theory has uh what's derived from it is this idea that um the cosmological constants are so exquisitely arranged it's basically that there is a uh, number of possible universes with different cosmological constants okay the number is is beyond staggering it's beyond cos it's beyond cosmological it's, it's beyond astronomical it's it's 10 to the 500 10 with 500 noughts following it now, what, what this uh, life intelligence theory solves is it basically says, basically, look, it's not the, all these different universes that don't exist. What exists is what's fundamental for enabling this central life intelligence aspect to exist. 
so instead of saying, you know, there's all these different universes, 10 to the 500, what you're supposing is basically that there is this, uh, you know, there is life and intelligence. And then we select the tiny subset of those universes to be actually real. Now, in terms of, okay, uh, wave particle duality and stuff, I mean, you know, collapse of the wave function. I mean, what, what I think, what I think is, is correct and right is basically that um, th there is this idea called, uh, called time symmetric quantum mechanics. It, it comes from a physicist called Yake Haranoff. Now, he was nominated for the, the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2000, 2009, I think. He, won, he didn't win, okay, but he, he won the 2010 US Presidential Medal um, for, for Physics. That's quite prestigious as well. His idea basically, uh, so this is very mainstream physics now, um, and uh, several prominent physicists have taken up his cause. Time symmetric quantum mechanics is basically this idea that there's a destiny wave function that comes from the future, emanates backwards in time. And that basically it kind of like you know, it directs the, the collapse of the wave function going forwards in time. Do you see it's teleological? What I think is the case is that basically, okay, that this uh, destiny wave function further kind of like then it kind of like subsidizes or, you know, it selects even further a tiny, tiny subset of possible universes. Because I think the real, uh, what is real and what is, uh, what is existent is, is, are those universes which basically support life and intelligence. But I think that uh, the, the, the real, uh, the, 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 the even smaller subset of that number of universes are those universes universes which converge to this cosmic christ or universal vishnu or celestial buddha you see it's a tiny subset and the, and from that cosmic christ this kind of destiny wave function emanates backwards in time to create the universe so i think in terms of um you know solving the problems in in physics because this brain theory of life and intelligence fractal brain theory of life and intelligence extrapolates to the universe then there's a perfect mapping from, okay, the teleology of the brain in our lives. Okay, where do we have meaning and purpose in, in what we understand is in our brains, isn't it? Well, we have a fractal theory of the brain and mind where there is a purpose and meaning, and that extrapolates to the universe, then basically it shows there is purpose and meaning in the universe, which then basically maps to this backward emanation destiny wave function thing. So I think, I think there, is a, there is a perfect extrapolation from this fractal brain theory to the universe. And I think it, you know, what's missing in physics and cosmology now, there are all these separate theories, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different theories. What's lacking is an overall picture, a compelling picture to take all these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and form it into a composite picture, which is utterly compelling. Now, what I believe is that this, uh, this fractal brain life equals intelligence symmetry theory is so fundamental it'll provide the grounding in order to slot all these different theories from physics and cosmology into something that's far more powerful than all these separate than what, what these separate theories can achieve so that's what i believe so i think it's not just um you know um answers one or two questions i think it's really the framework for fitting together all the separate physical theories yeah, and, and, and you can see in mainstream science, we see people like Max Tegmark, uh, Michio uh, Keku, Roger Penrose, as you mentioned, and, and lesser known people like Donald Huffman and uh, Nima Arkani Hamed exploring these ideas of uh, mathematics being fundamental to reality and consciousness. Um, so are there, are there any other researchers who are on a similar track to you who, who you would consider 
to be your academic allies or, or contemporaries? Like who else is, is is going for this that you're aware of? Do you know, I think I think Roger Penrose. I think I think he has a kind of hidden agenda because I think he wrote his book, you know, Emperor's New Mind, which I wrote. I read it avidly a month after it came out back in I think 1989 or something. Right. Um, I think I think he has a hidden agenda. I think he really is trying to uh, re-establish um, kind of I guess uh, I don't want to use the word spiritual, but he's trying to he's trying to basically. Uh, trying to establish with his reputation and you know through his 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 his, his work is something that uh human consciousness and human you know human beings don't just reduce to basic physics i think i think he has maybe a, a quasi spiritual beliefs uh, motivating him. maybe that's his quaker background or, or whatever but but I, th I think there are like you know historically uh, people like schrodinger fully was into advaita vedanta you know in his life what is in his book what is life so, so I think historically uh, it's always been the case. I, I, I think, I think uh, in the world, if people are pursuing this direction in academia, then they often keep keep very quiet about it because they don't mm. want to damage careers. So I think there are people who are converging on the same track. I mean, say Max Tegmark is is promoting this idea of a mathematical universe, and he's basically reiterating Pythagoras. I mean, I mean, so so there are these, these uh, kind of. More generally speaking, what I believe is that uh, there are many, many physicists who are basically coming up with ideas which uh, have parallels to religion and spiritual cosmology, you might say. They might not themselves believe in religion or spirituality, but, but there exist as parallels. So uh, another mystical idea which uh, Roger Penrose believes in is cyclical universes. Now, there are other researchers promoting the idea of cyclical universes. This is straight, you know, classical Hinduism and some schools of mystical Islam. What I believe is that many of these researchers who are producing these parallels to, in physics cosmology to religion, spirituality, uh, they may or may not be aware of it uh, uh, if they are having uh, kind of uh, agendas which are quasi spiritual then, then they have to keep quiet about it but it doesn't matter w my agenda is basically trying to communicate these religious ideas what i can do is take all their work these fragments which have parallels to religious spiritual cosmology and what i've been able to do uh, just actually quite recently in the past five years is take all these fragments together and form a composite picture of the universe and cosmology, which is identical to the kind of cosmology of the of the so-called hidden esoteric religion or the kind of perennial wisdom or so-called Prisca theologia. So, so in terms of allies, maybe in the future more will come out of the woodwork as this kind of thing becomes more accessible and open. But right, right now, I think I think there are many people who are. Uh, maybe young researchers who are basically really are looking for something um you know more kind of like uh, more encompassing i suppose but in terms of mainstream uh kind of physicists and cosmologists if if they are having these views then, then i think they they keep quiet about it quite frankly that's what i think mm. yeah so i'll tell you, you a funny story uh, sorry i'll tell you a funny on. story I, I met roger okay. penrose and uh because i went to i was sponsored to go to the tucson consciousness conference 20th anniversary in 2014 and uh, the organizer thought i was korean tv crew okay <laughs> anyway uh, i cut long story short I, I before the meeting started i actually sat down to dinner with roger penrose and stuart hammeroff okay this is fluke it's just basically oh oh you're not a t korean tv crew but you're still important i'm gonna just tell you to bugger off okay <laughs> Because of that, I managed to sit down, you know, before the conference. I managed to really talk to uh, Roger Penrose 
and his and his wife, Goshri, uh, Goshri, I said, uh, his wife is very much younger than him. I mean, I said, oh, oh, I said to his wife, oh, are you, are you a consciousness researcher? You're a gee whiz. And she said, oh, I'm Roger's wife. And I was like, oh, poor foot there, <laughs> silly me. Anyway, silly, silly guy. But anyway, cut long story short, I, I, I think that from discussions with Hammeroff and Penrose, with Hammeroff, I kind of like said, you know, what's your interest in consciousness? He kind of like, he, he kind of like said, yeah, but, back in the 60s 70s and i kind of said kind of uh, kind of like said uh you know, psychedelic drugs was psychedelic drugs involved and stuff and you know and then kind of like um do you have a kind of spiritual angle and and the, his, his reaction was kind of like almost like right as in, uh, <laughs> yeah. so so i'm not i might misread I mean, you might see this yeah. interview and saying you know you, you totally got the wrong idea but I, I got the impression that basically there was a understanding that he didn't want to kind of make open and the fact that he's hanging out with Deepak Chopra, who's you know closely aligned with this uh, conference, suggests to me again that's a potential ally who, even in an intimate dinner before conference, had to kind of keep quiet about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's another the, kind of like just, just a little side story there. No, great. So, so that really speaks to the sort of uh, allergy of you know um, mo modernist thinkers and, and you know scientific rationalists who really reverse to to the whole and anything that mentions like deep pack or or you know consciousness and stuff like that it, it there's this divide in the in the in the scientific and uh research community where some people accept that we that's something that we need to look at like uh, rupert sheldrake is another example uh, of someone who is willing to put his put his neck out and and uh, be out there saying, you know, in a true scientific, I would, what I would call true scientific way, um, suggesting that there are, there are questions that we, that we can tackle without this sort of stigma of, um, of woo, you know, and, um, well, so, totally. I mean, you, you, you <clears throat> understand that Oliver is someone, it, it was someone, someone who, with the prestige of Erwin Schrödinger, who's basically the father of quantum, well, one of the fathers of quantum mechanics. Quantum, his, you know, Schrödinger wave equations. I mean, are the basis of quantum mechanics. You know, uh, I mean, um, a lot of Heisenberg's matrix matrix methods. Uh, I mean, I mean, in his book, What Is Life, he actually says what he believes. He actually says things like. Uh, you know, you know, Deus factor sum. I've become God. He, he, he kind of like uh, talks about the Atman Brahman formulation in Bhagavad Gita. So this is what he fully believes. You know, basically, essentially mystical ideas of oneness with the universe, one with oneness with God. But then, uh, you know, even someone of his stature, his book What Is Life, even though um, James Watson and Francis Crick read it and were hugely influenced by it, and, and they actually wrote to him after they got their Nobel Prize, saying your book really influenced us. Because what he wrote in the epilogue, okay, he, he wrote his essentially religious beliefs. That book is almost like anathema. It's like banned. It's almost like censored from the kind of like, you know what I'm saying? The modern discourse yeah. in, 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 uh, in, in physics and life science. Yeah. So I'm really for a paradigm shift, really. I mean, waiting for this kind of great revolution to happen in the world of science. And I think, it, it, I think it's due time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's strange, isn't it? How, how those early quantum physicists kind of, they all alluded to some greater narrative or, or conception of uh, of reality involving not necessarily a Christian God, but some some intelligence or or, or or something underlying that we just you know 
we, we could infer but not prove. Um, I'll tell you a story. I met um, just randomly uh, on the train uh, quite recently a student who uh, is studying physics and uh, philosophy as a, okay. as a combination at university. And, uh, and so and basically I sat next to them because I saw that they had a quantum physics book on the table. I was like, wow, I've got to talk to this person. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we got talking and, you know, I was asking all these kind of big questions. And so it's, it's, it's relatively rare, I think, for someone to combine those two subjects. There's not, you know, they're, two, they're in two different departments in the university and obviously they, they can contradict one another, philosophy and, and, uh, phys and physics. Um, and, and, you know, she, it was interesting that she said uh, at some point, um, you know, in studying like uh, Schrodinger's equation and, 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 and being exquisitely aware of the the fine-tuned, fine-balanced nature of the, the laws of physics, that she she was surprised um, that she she had begun to think um, that it that there was something uh, you know not non-traditionally physical about about origins and about and about reality, and, and that kind of shocked her to to get that realization when going into physics. Right, um right. so yeah it's it's kind of like yeah it's it's strange how it seems like historically we've already been there you know these yeah, yeah, thinkers yeah. have already been there and now we're having to almost go through the same realization but maybe on a on a more layman level uh, it's got to permeate society at a deeper level perhaps um I think the, uh, the the originators were of quantum mechanics. I mean, with all due respect to you know leading lights of physics today, I, I think they're just on another level to the kind of like uh, people we have today. They're just on a, a kind of like a, you know, I mean, uh, there are very clever guys working in the field today, but in terms of the founders, they were just basically like geniuses, yeah. So, so almost without exception, they kind of like uh, they they saw the parallels between what they were studying, their physics, and uh, you know Taoism, Eastern philosophy, Hermetic Christianity, call it what you will. You know, Pauli uh, worked with Carl Gustav Jung on his theory of synchronicity and uh, non-causal physics. Uh, what, what I think what happened is is that basically there's been a trend towards atheism since the, the mid 19th century. And I think the German-speaking world, they, they, they kind of hung on to its kind of religion and spirituality a bit longer than than maybe uh, other parts of the world. And the you know, idealist view made the mainly German-speaking founders of quantum mechanics maybe uh, more open to a kind of like spiritual interpretation. But I think the uh, juggernaut of atheism has kind of progressed through the 20th century, and I think just became embedded in, in academic, academic departments. I think things go in cycles. I think basically, you know, things return. So I think I think there is a kind of like a hunger and also a kind of like a, a search for deeper answers. I suppose that are not just about you know kind of you know paying your bills and uh, making a career in physics and winning a Nobel Prize. I think maybe there's a kind of return to a search for deeper integration of these ideas with things like philosophy and even religion. I think I think that's what's mm. happening today. Mm. Yeah, certainly. Um come to the fore with discussions around um, the term that, you know, the meaning crisis uh, and all, all yeah, those right. guys, you know, John Bavaki, et cetera. Um, so to get back on a little bit with the, with the, with the mainstream physics theories, <clears throat> okay. 
you've referred to how the two most explanatory contending theories in physics, string theory and loop quantum, quantum gravity, both suggest this big bounce universe, this, uh, you know, teleological uh, expanding and, and, and shrinking universe, uh, cyclical. Um, it was my understanding that string theory suggests the, the many world hypothesis, which is why I struggle to take it seriously fully. So is, does, that, does that contradict what you're saying about um, it supporting uh, the cyclical big bounce? Or is that, is that, is that confluent with it? Uh, you know, um, from, from my understanding, reading papers in the field of loop quantum gravity and, and string theory, what, what they are actually saying, what they're saying is there is a, a kind of pre-Big Bang epoch. Okay, so be, before the Big Bang happened, there's a pre-Big Bang epoch to the universe. Something existed, yeah. it's not something from nothing. Now, what they're both saying is that basically the pre-Big Bang epoch is a perfect mirror image of this universe in this epoch. That's what they're both saying. Now, mm. some theorists take it further and, um, you, know, you know, merge it with the Big Bang theory. So some theorists do, do it kind of differently. So I know Sean Carroll, I think, working with Alan Guff, they have a kind of Janus face theory of the universe, which is just basically from the Big Bang, it di diverges in both directions. But some people take it further and, and they, they'll say basically, yes, this is a pre-Big Bang epoch. And that's the, the, the time before the Big Bang. Now, the, the thing about the... Uh, and, and some people take it further and then you know merge it with the ideas of a cyclical universe but what what you know loop quantum gravity string theory are saying explicitly both of them saying um in 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 in, in the, the, the their formulations is, is is a pre big bang epoch that's a, that's a mirror image now the for for you know our purposes in terms of talking about teleology and uh, using that for political ends and uh, having a kind of like extrapolation extrapolating a, a life intelligence fractal brain theory to the universe for my purposes i mean what's what's interesting is that um this idea of teleology and this idea of a pre-big bang epoch being a mirror image and now this is fundamental result absolutely fundamental no one would contest this is absolutely fundamental it's called cpt symmetry and it's, if you take it out of the you know modern physics or the most modern physics collapses apparently so you no know, nobel prizes duly handed out it's a fundamental concept to the universe uh, what CPT symmetry states is basically that there is charge, there's polarity, and there's time, and they're intertwined. If you flip one of those, you know, kind of like aspects, you have to flip the other two. It's called CPT symmetry. Now, the fact that the pre-Big Bang epoch is a mirror image, that's <clears throat> polarity. You're flipping the polarity, which means you also have to flip time and charge. That's what, that's what it means. So it, it means that the pre-Big Bang epoch, the arrow of time goes the other way. Now, this is really interesting because it means, but if it's the big bounce, it means that basically there's a time inversion. It means that basically it's a big bounce, but we're, we're bouncing back in time. <laughs> it's strange, isn't it? So mm. instead of the big bang being the beginning, it's a point of inflection, which means everything that's gonna happen in the future has already happened because it's happened in terms of like a, like a photographic negative, you know, charge is inverted. So matter is antimatter, Antimatter is matter is like a photographic negative, but a photographic negative contains all the information to make the photograph, which means the pre-Big pre Bang epoch, like the photographic negative, contains all the information for the, for creating this epoch. 
DCC, so it's completely teleological. And it mm. basically says that you know the entire universe is ahead of us, has, has already happened, but in the kind of mirror image. So it's teleological, and it's also like written like a book. So, so yeah, it's like I guess it's Bhagavad Gita. This is the Bible. This is the Quran. So this is another convergence with religion. Yeah. Is there any way we would be aware of the fact whether we're going forwards or backwards? <laughs> Well, well, I mean, all, all the laws in physics are time reversible, quantum mechanics, general relativity, they're all time reversible. I mean, I mean, what we have is this thing called entropy. So from, from the Big Bang, there's you know, increase in entropy, but then increase in complexity. I guess the, in the counterclock phase, even though it's like, you know, inversion in time, it was just, it's like a inversion of what's happening now. So we go from, in the counterclock phase, you know, the, the, the pre-Big Bang, you go from you know, totality, to, total complexity, into this kind of dissolution into chaos. And then you know, it gets sucked into this low entropy big bang point and then it explodes again. It goes back to complexity. Yeah. Does that make so sense? It, it does, yeah. And, I, and I've thought about this in terms of, um, well, so I'll ask the question. Um, so if the universe is repeatedly bouncing and mirroring itself yeah. to and from this big bang or omega point, you might yeah. call it, um, are you saying it's literally a negative copy with the exact same events reoccurring in reverse, or is it repeating the sort of overarching trend with unique events that ends up at the same unified state? I mean, what the physicists are saying, what they're, what they're saying, the loop quantum gravitists, quantum gravitists and the kind of superstring theorists are saying is basically the, the pre-Big Bang epoch is an exact mirror image of this one, so it contains all the information. What, what I would say is basically, unlike Nietzsche's eternal return of the same thing, what I think is that basically, uh, you know, in reality, in real physics, there's no perfect periodic attractors. There's basically chaos attractors, yeah? They basically never repeat. So what, what, I, what I think is the case is that, um, okay, what, once we arrive at the, you know, the, you know back to the um, omega point, which is actually the, the alpha point, then we, we have a new creation in a sense, and it's like another loop on the chaos attractor, but it's, it's, it's not repeating this exactly the same trajectory. So it's like infinite variations on the same theme. Mm. Th th does that make sense? And then so you create a new epoch, and basically the new epoch is like a new a kind of a counterclock, counterclock a kind of dissolution of Godhead or whatever, or celestial Buddha, cosmic Christ. And there's a new dissolution, a new pattern of dissolution. And this, in, the, in, the, in the next cycle of the universe, then basically there's a re-evolution, a new Big Bang, and then things play out, but it's not exactly the same. Mm. At the same time, this cosmic template, uh, it, it gives, because we have a fractal theory of the universe, that, that's a, a body and brain, that's an intelligence, then this fractal template is actually being played out in our lives. So in a sense, every life, is also a variation on that same theme, but on a microcosmic scale. Hmm. So what, it's, what does this mean for uh, the, the free will versus determinism dialectic? I'm not sure I've heard you talk about that a lot. I, I, think, I think free will is one of those questions, which is uh, something of a, like, like a word game, really, because I think, I think you say free will, is this person free? by considering this person isolated from society, isolated from the rest of the universe, then in a sense, that person is free because you're basically saying this person or that a person being tried in court, I mean, that person might say, society's to blame. I'm, I'm, 
I'm, I'm in this court, court now because what's happened in my life and society, what's happened ultimately in the universe, you know, interdependent arising in the sense that the, the, the you know, the, the, uh, the defendant is correct, but you can't put, you know, society in the universe on trial every time someone goes to court. So, so I think in, in terms of like uh, practical considerations, then we have to think in terms of an individual in isolation of considering society in the universe as being free. But then from another perspective of, you know, kind of block universe, uh, kind of, I guess, cosmological perspective, then we are in a sense like, like insects frozen in amber. There's absolutely no freedom. But in terms of our day-to-day -day lives, because we don't have perfect knowledge, we don't have perfect knowledge of what's going to happen in the future, then for all intents and purposes, considering ourselves as individuals separate from the universe and society, then in a sense we are free. But it's, it's you see, it's circular, it's self-defining, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I've arrived at that that sort of uh, dual perspective before, and and I, some part of me thinks that it's not quite satisfactory, like it's. Um, you know, if we're going to have this sort of new understanding of 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 reality, then there needs to be some implications for that. You know, you know, maybe maybe it should affect our, uh, our ethics and and morals and and legal systems um, to some degree. Um, yeah, I, I struggle with holding those two, um, and I, and I wonder what if there's like a synthesis position. Well, I, I think I think what's missing today is that uh, I think think you know talking about atheism, the rise of atheism in in the nineteenth century is that basically uh, certain cosmological metaphysical assumptions were abandoned, and these were related to this kind of religion, which is really derived from what emerged during the Renaissance. They called it the Prisca Theologia, and there's a certain model of the universe which was purposeful, which was microcosm as macrocosm. And this this uh, idea of uh, of cosmology and metaphysics really influenced the kind of the the, the Renaissance, but also the Enlightenment. But but the uh, ideas of progress really came from this kind of metaphysical cosmological understanding, and ideas of like human rights and human dignity really came from this cosmological metaphysical understanding. So I think th these ideas really lead to a kind of like if you can reestablish these kind of metaphysical cosmological ideas, which really uh, are the same ideas from the Renaissance and Enlightenment, which really gave rise to the modern world, then I think you can really uh, solve this kind of um, conundrum that many liberals and left-wing have, uh, that they've kind of forgotten their roots, that the roots of modern society really are from the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. You know, the Enlightenment project happily chopped away the roots of religion, that's what happened. Okay, so happily, uh, but many uh, commentators and thinkers don't understand that those Enlightenment thinkers, they weren't atheists. They believe in a certain hidden religion. You might call it esoteric. It's called a Prisca Theologia, as, as was said. In the process of chopping the way the roots of religion, the process also chopped away those very roots of the Enlightenment project itself that gave rise to these notions of equality, liberty, fraternity, progress, equal dignity, etc. So I think that's the problem today. And I think the wider implication of what we just talked about, say, even the idea of teleological universe that is has a kind of set conclusion, has built in it this idea of progression towards some kind of perfect future state. So, so I guess uh, by reviving these kind of ideas, which do uh, kind of clash with ideas of me being free and determining the future, there's a kind of like, I guess, a, a silver lining that also you give people a kind of like a model of the universe and world history that has this kind of eschatological hope that things will work out in the end. So I think there is, is, is a two-edged sword, I, I think. 
Yeah, <clears throat> I think you've largely answered the next question, which is, um, but maybe we can just just sort of open it up a little bit. So, yeah. <clears throat> so what's the what's the connection with religion, myth, and mysticism? So you talk about how esoteric ideas influenced the Enlightenment, but that it somehow got lost as the West embraced empirical science. And yeah. some, some, or arguably most Western people would call that progress, uh, this yeah, move yeah. towards empiricism. So, but why, why is that not necessarily the case? Well, well, I, I think I think um, absolutely there's been progress in technology that cannot cannot be denied. I mean, I have all these amazing technologies, modern living standards through technology has been been incredible. You know, modern healthcare, but there's, there's dark side. I think what happened was that, um, say, uh, you know, William Blake, who I'm a great fan of, I think he warned of the dark satanic mills, and that's before the industrial revolution just started. So the kind of upshot of this technological progress, you know, is essentially uh, the modern industrial world. And uh, it, it really uh, started off, you know, in the kind of late 18th century. And William Blake was warning of these dark satanic mills, but the, obviously the, the satanic mills got far, far darker. Uh, now, William Blake was a romantic. And I think the romantics in um, England and also Germany, they're, they're essentially mystics. And there's a far heavily more mystical aspect in German idealism than English idealism, but William Blake really was uber-mystic. He, he fought himself as a prophet. So, so I think what the romantics were about was, yes, that, that they were clinging on to this uh, religion of the Renaissance uh, that uh, you know, organizations like the Freemasons and Christians fully believe in anyway. But I guess what they were warning of was that something was precious was being lost. And I think uh, the dark satanic mills got far darker. And what was lost was that religion which really gave the kind of values which uh, are missing in the world today. So, so I think, um, you know, the idea that uh, capitalism went wild, that the industrial kind of process just, just has gone awry and now it's destroying the planet. So, so I think what's, what went out with the, what, what Willem Blake was warning and the romantics were warning was basically a baby is being thrown out with the bathwater. And that baby is essentially the cosmological metaphysical assumptions of their religion which really underpinned the values of the Renaissance and Enlightenment. So I think uh, we're living in a world today where we have this amazing technology, but those values have gone. And with the modern period, the rise of Marxism, Nazism, all these neoliberalisms and all these isms of the world, I think basically they have gone astray because they kind of lost those core values which really enable civilization. I mean, that sounds really highfalutin, doesn't it? We're talking about the values which really kind of basically enabled the Renaissance, enabled the Enlightenment. It enabled the the uh, the progress. The the, the the start of science was essentially uh, it was a Freemason meeting group, the Royal Society. It was um, it, it was uh, basically the Invisible College was a Freemason meeting group. Francis Bacon was totally into this Prisca theologia. They basically, you know, there was a hidden religion. It gave rise to science, and the science gave rise to the modern technological world, and it gave rise to these values: equality, liberty, fraternity, universal brotherhood you know, human dignity, sanctity of human life. But the, when you take away the, the, the cosmological metaphysical assumptions that you, you see what's taken its place is Ayn Rand's absolute selfishness. It is, it is Marxism, Nazism, neoliberalism. Basically, the spirit has gone. And I think basically this is what the romantics were warning. And once you realize that a baby has been thrown out of the bathwater, then you understand why we have a meaning, a crisis of meaning, and why you know, all the kind of like morals and ethics of the world have gone astray. And once you realize the baby has been thrown out of the bathwater, what do you do? You have to get the baby back. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> just want to uh, 
pause on 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 that uh, those those names you mentioned so iron rand the kind of godmother of uh greed is good philosophy so it's yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's it, i thought i find it easier to see how you can notice the absence of uh of an ethical framework in that ideology but leftists might argue that embedded in marx is you know much more of a communitarian uh you know um golden rule kind of kind of ethic um so but but obviously then you know i know there's a lot of controversy about whether it was marx's ideas that led to you know the atrocities of the 20th century but um do you think it's the ab do you think if marx had been operating from a more grounded uh metaphysical route that you know that that would have put us in better stead in the 20th century well absolutely i I think one thing i'll say about ayn rand is basically her objectivism is actually it actually given the current metaphysical cosmological assumptions purposeless universe materialism selfish genes her philosophy makes absolute sense so I give that to Ayn Rand. She's saying, let's be objective about things. And she's not incorrect. She's okay, consistent. I'll, I'll, <laughs> she's consistent. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, I mean, the, the, but the problem is, okay, the problem is people might say we like our Ayn Rand. Uh, you know, um, Richard Dawkins uh, thinks that, uh, you know, selfish genes is really bad for organizing society and living our lives. Okay? Mm. This is a passion anti-Darwinist when it comes to, you know, using the ideas of Darwin and selfish genes in terms of living our lives. Yeah, let's let's uh, repeat that. Richard Richard Dawkins says he's a passionate anti-Darwinist. <laughs> did you know? In my talks, I repeat that because people think they've misheard me. No, he said at the, at the Oxford Union. He said it, he was interviewed by, by I can't remember his name. It's the uh, I keep feeling he's, he's interviewed. This is Oxford Union interview. He's a passionate anti-Darwinist when it comes to living our lives, organizing our society. He actually, you know, advocates that the morals of the Church of England is actually not too bad. You know, so he's basically there's a kind of conflict in his mind. Okay, now the the problem is people might say Ayn Rand. We, we like our Ayn Rand. We like our selfishness. We like our you know Thatcherism because Richard Dawkins joked that uh, selfish genes leads leads to a Thatcherite world. Well, what people don't understand what Richard Dawkins didn't say in that interview was basically he didn't, he didn't say that basically it doesn't just lead to a selfish world. It leads to a genocidal world, because if you truly take the ideas of selfish genes and apply it to society and living our lives, it leads to genocidal political ideology. And it's not hypothetical, is it? Because we know the first wave of Darwinism, social Darwinism, eugenics, it led to Nazi ideology. So this is not hypothetical. So there's an implication and uh, to uh, the modern worldview, and it's not just Ayn Rand. It's basically what happened in in Germany during the Weimar Republic. Mm. Yeah. Uh, sorry, back to Marx. I mean, the thing, the thing about Karl Marx, yes, he lost his religion. In in the uh, both he and Engels actually wrote to each other, saying that uh, actually Ludwig's Feuerbach's book, which was a polemic against uh, Christian religion, they both read it and they they. Uh, they wrote about how they lost their fixation on Hegel on his spiritual ideas. They also wrote to each other weeks after you know Darwin's Origin of Species was published, and they again congratulated themselves on how in accord they were with his ideas. Uh, and what I say about Marxism basically is that okay, look, someone who's studied Marxism far more than I have have done is John Maynard Keynes, the great economist, okay, absolute genius, a very clever guy, okay. 
And basically he called, um, he, there's a problem with, uh, you take away God, he, he basically had this problem and uh, you take away God and uh, th these ideas of uh, this kind of hidden religion, these ideas of the, the God within or we're made in the image of God, that there's a cosmic image, somehow we're of that image. His analysis was basically that inevitably what led to was utilitarianism. Okay, Jeremy Bentham, etc. You know, uh, UCL was body used to be in UC, University College just down the road from where I am now. Um, Jeremy Bentham's uh, utilitarianism. Now, John Maynard Keynes called Marxism utilitarianism reductio ad absurdum. He's saying basically, essentially, you take away the, the, the religion, you have basically utilitarianism. Now, in, in the current times, you know, Sam Harris's, uh, you know, militant atheist, ethical moral system based on the current worldview, what is it? Utilitarianism. Now, what's, what's wrong with utilitarianism? Okay, there are lots of problems with utilitarianism. Okay, so, but, but I'm saying that's, that's the best answer that uh, we take away the kind of like, uh, I guess, spiritual aspect to kind of economics. And political philosophy that's what we end up with mm. can, you, can you just go into that uh for the sake of well me and the audience uh like yeah so the the, the problem with utilitarianism it's, it's basically you know the, the 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 greatest good for the greatest number i mean what what, yeah. what it kind of like uh the, the conundrum is basically do, do we you know like uh for, for the satisfaction of the greater good, do we do we kill someone for their entertainment or do we exterminate a minority because the greater good feel it feels it's better for them so, so I guess what, what, what it misses is kind of like uh, the idea of absolute human dignity. That's, that's what's missing, basically. So we talk about a numbers game, you know, in terms of like a statistical measure of maximum utility for the maximum number, then it doesn't really deal with things like exterminating minorities because it satisfies the greater number, you maximize the utility. It's also the thing is, what is, what is the greatest satisfaction of the, the maximum? How do you measure happiness and stuff? So, so there are problems with it. And I think basically once you take away these ideas of the absolute sanctity of human life, then I think basically you do end up inevitably with utilitarian theories with, like Marxism, which have their problems by sacrificing the kind of uh, sanctity of the, the lives of a minority for the satisfaction of the greater majority. That's one of the problems. Mm. Yeah. So just to clarify for the audience, uh, do, you, do you ascribe to any particular existing religion? Well, I think I think my view is basically I know I know this is a very controversial thing, but my view is basically all religion fundamentally is the same. I can't include every single dodgy cult or every single small kind of like grouping that's emerged, but in terms of major world religion, there's an essential core truth, and that's a universal truth. There's a kind of esoteric core to all world religions. Uh, and uh, th this can be called Prisca Theologia or perennial wisdom. And this is where you have the same set of beliefs. So I guess you might say I'm universalist, but I'm really about uh, kind of showing uh, basically that there really is this core truth and then reestablishing that core truth through science and then kind of presenting it into the 20th century because I think it has massive political implications, which we kind of kind of skinned over in this interview. But I think if, if you want to give uh, my religion or what I believe in the name, there's really, uh, you might call it Prisca Theologia, essentially what the, uh, you know, the, the Renaissance men, well, men, men really believe in, or perennial wisdom. So that, that, is, that is essentially my religion. But I think 
what I'm about is trying to fully express this religion, not in terms of parables or, you know, re I've referenced the Bible, I've re referenced Corpus, Mescom, Quran, etc. In, in terms of uh, communicating the core ideas of this core truth of religion. But I think what I'm really about is to try and completely explain it using purely scientific, mathematical and philosophic concepts mm. and have its own grounding in pure reason while at the same time referencing the kind of traditions of the world. So that, mm. that's what I'm about, really. That's my religion, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, just to pause on that. Um, you, so you've said all religions have this common feature that might be called um, the Gnostic experience or, you know, this, this, this unifying truth or the, the knowing the truth of God. Um, yeah, yeah. But I've heard, I've heard some pushback from that idea from more like physicalist friends um, yeah, yeah, yeah. who say that it's too simplistic to make these kind of sweeping connections and it ignores the, the very real differences between, say, the practices and beliefs of Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, etc. And it could even be offensive to those groups. So, so how, how, is that a potential and how, how do you respond to that? I think what, what most people don't understand is that uh, okay, religion is a very complex thing. Okay, obviously there's there's many differences in religious belief. What what may, most people don't understand, even people who have done degrees, even doctorates, even professors of theology or comparative religion, they don't understand that religion exists on two levels. Okay, there's basically what's called outer mysteries, the outer skins, outer skins of the onion, and there's what's called esoteric or inner mysteries. All religion has this. Okay. So in Judaism, we have the hidden teachings of Moses, divulged only to Joshua, his, you know, his, his successor. We have the hidden teachings of Buddha, only given to Ananda. We have the, the so-called Batin of Islam, only divulged in full to Ali, his son-in-law and cousin. And you know, Jesus saying in the um, Bible, revealed only to his disciples, I reveal to you, only to you, the, the mysteries of the kingdom. To everyone else, the, the, the mystery is spoken of in parables, so that, that they are ever seeing but never perceiving ever hearing but never understanding but that is the situation of most people who talk about religion I know, basically i've worked in religion for 10 years i know i know all kinds of people all different sects cults religions and uh what it is is basically the 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 the, the, the truth of the central core esoteric religion hidden teachings of moses kabbalah the Vajrayana Buddhism, the kind of a Sufi Shia sects of Islam, etc., esoteric Christianity, the kind of tantric Advaita Vedanta traditions. What you have is basically a core set of beliefs which are absolutely identical. Now, the critic might even say that uh, even in these esoteric traditions, there are differences. But then you've got to understand the history of religion is basically facts get changed, facts get banned, facts get altered. Okay. When you have a truth that's so kind of like, uh, it's so hard to explain, it's so hard to understand, and books which talk about this truth, like Corpus Medicum, even the Bible, will tell you, if you divulge this truth, you're going to be killed. So historically, this was a case that you have a, basically an idea, a set of ideas, where if you actually openly talked about it, you were murdered, basically. And of course, Medicum chapter 13 warns you, don't talk about these things because you're going to be killed historically. That's always the case in Islam, in Judaism, in, in, in general, religion generally. Now, okay, the, the critic of, uh, of this idea might, might say that basically even in esoteric mysteries, there are differences in opinion. But of course there are because the ideas get changed. But when you actually trace things back in time, they realize the same ideas are to be found at the origin of the religion. So give me, let me give you one example. 
I mean, uh, Muhammad's teaching of, you know, kind of like the batin of like uh, somehow that somehow we can become one with God or this idea of, it's, it's called wada al-wujud, the essential unity of all being. It means that somehow we are all one, God is one, the oneness that God is, the oneness we are is one and the same. Now, someone might say, oh, but the Naqshbandi sect, in, uh, basically, they, 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 they believe a kind of qualified version of this. But then you see how the doctrine was changed in the 17th century. We might, the doctrine of fana in Islam, okay, annihilation of the self in God, again, this kind of union with God idea. Uh, some might say, oh, this Sufi sect, this Shia sect doesn't believe in it. It's, it's banned, but it, you know, it's, it's forbidden. But they realized that basically it was forbidden. Yes, in, in, the, in the 10th century, uh, you know, in Baghdad. But when you trace it back to the origin of Islam, the origins of these uh, teachings in Hinduism, et cetera, and the origins of these teachings in Christianity, then you find a perfect convergence, do you see? Mm. So from a superficial level, then people see all these differences and all these kind of like, even people study comparative religion, uh, you know, even theologians, but they don't understand, you need, really need to dig, dig in deeper to the actual, you know, the history of religion and the texts. But ultimately, the really hard thing is that the, the truth is so hard to understand, that's why it couldn't be explained and you were murdered for saying the truth. Really, you can't really gain the truth easily from reading books. So that's why I think I gained these insights into religion from my journey into the land of the lotus eaters. And I think it's only through direct experience that you totally get it. Mm. So you can, you can have endless debates with people who you know, even write books about religion who don't actually get the core essence of religion. Do, do you see? Religion mm. is a really, really complex thing. And it seems really multitudinous and differentiated. But at the core, once you really, really understand and through direct experience and also really analyze the history of religion and actually go through all the mystical texts and all the key metaphysical assumptions of the nature of God, you find a perfect unity. But if you can explain that perfect unity in pure scientific, philosophic, mathematical language, that is the clincher, isn't it? Yeah. You can see, if, once you explain it, then of course people would have had these experiences of, of oneness, non-duality, being one with God, one with the universe. And then when you take that all together, it forms a composite picture, which I think can really cut through all the nonsense and actually show a kind of unification of religion that I think is uh, really pending, I think. I, I think and as we talked about the political implications earlier on i think it's uh i think seriously yeah i think it's what the world needs right now i think yeah so a couple of things then um i know uh, we've spoken about uh, in one of your previous talks where i attended we, we spoke briefly about um ken wilbur who, who you had something some sort of criticisms of but he has this conception and i'm not uh, i'm not like a i'm not a fanboy exactly i certainly have my own criticism but um <laughs> He, he has this conception of uh, uh, of the absolute or, or you know, the, the God, uh, the idea of God uh, having you know, a way to approach the concept, uh, having a three, two, one uh, uh, approach to it. So it's the third person where you speak about God as though he's, you know, over there. The second person as though you speak to God. And then the first person where you, you know, you are one with God. You, you are God. You know, you, you yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you act as though you are. Um, so what, what is the nature of God in, 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 the fract, in this idea of the fractal reality system, if you, were, if you had to sort of try and define it? <clears throat> well, well I, th I think the, ultimately in the system, essentially what it, what it explains is basically in absolutely scientific terms, absolutely rational philosophic language. It, it explains how 
this idea of non-duality is is absolute like a, can be can be understood rationally so the idea that basically you have this experience of being totality of all existence and uh, being god or the universe is not illusory once you there's another another way of explaining it. maybe we we'll do this in the next interview to that, that that it makes perfect sense it's actually completely rational so so i, th I, th I think i think th there is a state of uh, i guess uh delusion or illusion when you think you are this kind of tiny person tiny speck in the universe you know somehow separate from the universe tiny speck in this tiny galaxy in this tiny lanaika in this tiny great big universe looking out in the vast universe and that's that's normal consciousness or, or i guess abnormal consciousness i guess that's one state and i guess the other state is basically when you experience yourself as being the entire universe in this body i suppose in this state and uh, I, I guess you know, the, the, um, the, you call this kingdom of heaven, you can call this enlightenment, I suppose. I mean, but I think what the fractal brain theory does is gives a kind of like a, and also this extrapolation of this life intelligence symmetry theory to the universe. It really gives a kind of like, a, I guess, a grounding to, to, to really uh, kind of reintroduce the mystery for the 21st century. Now, we talked about Rupert Sheldrake and all these kind of like, uh, kind of, um, I guess, new age speakers like Deepak Chopra. And in a sense, um, this kind of spiritual knowledge exists in a kind of ghetto. It's separate from mainstream society. It never has, it doesn't have power. You have, the, you have these kind of um, psychedelic hippies I used to hang out with and these psychedelic shaman. They are kind of out of fringes of society. Even someone like Rupert Sheldrake, even with his background, you know, uh, his qualifications, he's still in the outer fringes. Now the trick is, is to really push this idea into the mainstream, I think. And I, I think uh, I, I see this, uh, you know, this, this, this life intelligence symmetry theory and the creation of artificial intelligence as a vehicle for doing that. Now, the, the one, uh, I, guess, I guess Ken Wilber, that whole axis, Ken Wilber, Andrew Cohen, Adidas axis, because, you know, um, Ken Wilber was an Adidas follower. I guess I guess my problem is that basically that kind of stuff will never enter the mainstream because because of the, the background and the lineage, I suppose. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's, yeah, there's certainly like aesthetic issues with the movement, I think, yeah. Um. I think, you know, I think uh, <laughs> to me, I mean, you know, the, the fact that he's so um, passionately defended Adi Dar, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got ex-friends who are followers of Adi Dar. But what I'm saying is Adi Dar, he claims he's been the most enlightened person and the, and the world teacher and the greatest world teacher there is. And I used to live, um, I used to live actually um, downstairs from two Andrew Cohen ex-followers completely random who worked on his what is enlightenment magazine in north london okay i lived underneath them for 10 years we nice people so let's get like inside information the last i i spoke to a lady just outside the house i was picking up my my, my kids uh visiting my ex-partner uh he, andrew kern declared himself the world teacher so he's basically bouncing back trying to re-establish himself as a kind of spiritual teacher again mm. what i'm saying is uh, uh, that some of their followers get something from you know uh ken wilbur and even andrew kern even with all the you know kind of like highlighted abuse now it's not you know basically it's a fact now basically the abuse of his ex-followers i mean i mean basically uh, some of his followers still get something from him but what i'm saying is that adi dar andrew kern ken wilbur stuff will never enter into the mainstream so that's why i kind of keep a distance from it mm. and even deepak chopra even uh you know rupert sheldrake basically there's a kind of barrier between what they're doing and what the kind of wider world would accept so what i'm trying to do is basically really establish the same sort of ideas which uh, you know these thinkers are trying to 
in their own kind of culty new religious movement kind of ways or new age circles i'm trying to make it into a kind of mainstream thing that actually anyone can actually understand it even a militant atheist that's my aim a militant atheist new atheist whatever they might not believe it but they can't deny that's absolutely rational mm. yeah um i think i'm gonna i'm gonna skip a few questions to get onto you know, you mentioned the mainstream and um how a lot of people aren't aware that uh psychedelics uh substances and entheogens are really having a moment in uh, in academia and being researched by imperial college uh, and others john hopkins in in the us um for their and they're being researched for their therapeutic potential um how how, how might this sort of uh, psychedelic renaissance be useful in in the context of what you're saying I, I, I think um, well, even Sam Harris is getting in, into the game. I mean, uh, you know, he's, he's always uh, talked about it, but he's taken it in very small doses because he's been afraid. But he took uh, five grams apparently about two years ago. And he's, he's kind of like really entering, going down the rabbit hole now, which is great. I, I think, uh, I, 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 do, do you know, I, I think um, a lot of religion really came from psychedelics. I think in the, in the background of all religion, there's lurking in the background, there's psychedelics, even in Islam, even. In, in Judaism, except Buddhism, etc. What I think is that um, the 60s and 70s really seeded the, the modern New Age movement. Really seeded this interest in you know kind of mystical knowledge, hermetic knowledge, whatever. And I think the the current Renaissance in psychedelia can really be the kind of final push that can really awaken a new generation of people to be the protagonists, to really do what the children of Woodstock could not do at that time. But these, this new generation, I don't want to call them, call them Woodstockers, I mean, basically the psychedelic awakening in the late 60s and 70s kind of, kind of fizzled out, but it seeded what we have today. But I think this new kind of renaissance could be the push that could really uh, see the kind of reestablishment of, you know what I'm saying, this Prisca theologia, perennial wisdom. So the perennial wisdom returns. It, that's why it's called perennial wisdom. It keeps returning. And I think, okay, one, you have to articulate it in completely scientific, philosophic terms. But you also have to have a kind of like, I guess, a vanguard, a kind of group of people who don't just understand it intellectually, but directly experienced and they will be the vanguard that can really push this idea into the mainstream, I believe. Yes, so I think it's really, really important. Now, mm -hmm. from a, a kind of therapeutic, therapeutical uh, aspect, I mean, psychedelics is really, really important. But I think from a kind of spiritual, political aspect, I think it's more important that people get uh, this kind of, um, you know, I guess, mystical experience from uh, this uh, kind of like a, a kind of return of this kind of uh, the Institute of Eleusis for the 21st century, which many people are talking about anyway. So I think even people like people like Jordan Peterson are now kind of pushing this idea of kind of basically reawakening this use of psychedelics for the 21st century. And it's not just hippies, it's not just kind of new age people and counterculture people now. People you know, on the conservative wing are also saying the same thing. And I think this could be maybe a critical factor maybe, I think, in the unfolding of what's going on in the world today, I believe. Mm. Yeah. So I, I really love the way that you, you are able to um, to demystify uh, a lot of these a lot of these concepts and you know your whole mission to sort of uh, scientify 
and metaphysics and, and, and religion. Um, so, so with that in mind, let's talk about magic. Oh, oh, mag oh right. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a huge subject. Magic is a huge subject. And I know I've got to qualify this immediately because people think yeah. magic, Harry Potter, we're, we're going to go into land of fairies now. <laughs> yeah. Magic is a deadly serious subject. I mean, ma magic, uh, magic is a serious subject. Basically, the idea of magic gave rise to the modern world. I mean, really gave rise to the modern world technology. I've I, I got to explain this. I mean, there's this idea of the Renaissance magus. So magus, magi, magic, okay, Renaissance magus. And it said that Isaac Newton was the last magus. What does that mean? Okay, what, what does it mean? It means that there, there is an understanding of magic, which is really scientific and technological and real, but also mysterious and spiritual. And in a, in a sense, it was suppressed because it empowers people. And it's basically, it's quite revolutionary. In a sense, this magic really was the secret of the Renaissance men, Leonardo, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Giordano Bruno, etc. So, so it's a really powerful concept. So, so what it is, it's this. Okay, so what, okay, in a nutshell, what, what it is, is this. On a very simple level, magic means to manifest. Okay, so the, the uh, kind of like formulation, abracadabra, it's actually a kind, of, a kind of Hebrew Aramaic word. It means, as I say, so I create. Okay, so that's a very simple thing. It just means on one simple level, magic means to have something in your mind, in your head, and you manifest it in reality. That's what it means. So it means to manifest a painting, to manifest, I use this in my talks because it's utterly trite and simple. To manifest an ice cream, okay, I feel hungry, I want to get an ice cream. You have to keep it in mind. You have to go to the shop, get money to the bank, and then you come back with an ice cream. If you, you know, lose the thought in your mind, you, you fail, okay, so you don't come back with your ice cream. Anyway, look, you can manifest an ice cream, you can manifest a cathedral, you can manifest a new world order. Now, the idea in the Renaissance from these key texts like the Corpus Medicum, New Atlantis, and Oration on Dignity of Man, there was a key idea in that you could, to manifest things, you can explore nature. Okay, so nature, this white magic, uh, Picadillo Mirandola writes, is basically the, the, involves the profoundest contemplation and then to the, the knowledge of all of nature. And he writes that basically the powers which the largest of God has sown into nature to, to bring them to light. What he's talking about uh, is essentially technology, because he also talks about um, that uh, magic is essentially the highest realization of natural philosophy, i.e. science. So what, what are they talking about? They're talking about basically you, you explore nature, you discover her secrets, the, the, you know, the, 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 the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry and the laws of materials, and then you can create technology. That's, that's what they're talking about. Now, the, um, the, the most famous uh, utopian book, New Atlantis, uh, by Francis Bacon, the key line is, okay, the, the New Atlantis, the uh, House of Salomon, which is the, the key institute in, the, in New Atlantis, gave rise to the, the Royal Society of, of Science in London, the, the midwife of modern science. Now, the key passage in New Atlantis is, is uh, okay, the House of Salomon, the end of our foundation is the knowledge of causes and secret motions of things, and the enlarging of the bounds of the human empire to the effecting of all things possible. Again, the same idea. And it really led to the idea of the, the Renaissance magus, total knowledge and total power. And what it means is that by having the total knowledge of nature to understand the physical world, you can then basically use that knowledge to create technology to then to 
empower yourself to shape reality, to shape matter and energy. So that is magic. Now, um, that really gave rise to the modern process of science, called, you know, the, the Royal Society. That, that, that's what happened, basically. But the thing of magic is basically uh, the, the, real, the Renaissance men, based on their metaphysical cosmological assumptions, they, they, they were explicit. They were explicit in talking about two kinds of magic. They talked about black magic, which was selfish. And they talked about white magic, which, okay, in the words of uh, Pica della Mirandola, who wrote the Oration on Dignity of Man, he talked about the white magic sedulously serves nature. Okay, there's a difference. Now, in terms of, to cut a long story short, imagine, you know, uh, Jedi Knights and Sith. So you know, George Lucas was trying to communicate religious ideas, basically. There is a dark side and there is a light side. There's a side which is selfish and serves, you know, myself, my family, my clan, my race in that order. Okay, which is instincts, which is Ayn Rand, which is basically selfish genes, which is basic base human instincts. Okay, we all have that. There's another kind of side, which is white magic, which basically sedulously serves nature and serves all humankind. Okay, now, now there was a dimension to magic, which basically, okay, in the Corpus Meticum, in, in the, the first book, the Pymanda, there's a spiritual dimension. And they saw this empowering oneself as a means of spiritual transcendence. It's essentially Tantra, it's essentially Kabbalah. Now, the, the key passage is because Hermes Trismegistus asks metaphorically, how does one pass or go into God? I become unified with Godhead again. Because Pymanda describes the fall into normal reality, like the fall into from Garden of Eden. But it actually explicitly tells you the way that the soul returns to God or Godhead. The, the, the explicit line is, okay, this is, how, this, this is what, what happens. Those that, those that know to be deified, okay, give themselves to the powers, becoming powers there in God. So again, this idea of power, but it's power to serve humanity and to serve nature. They saw it as a spiritual exercise in terms of gaining power to serve humanity. In the words of Francis Bacon, to bring forth a progeny of a spring of invention to overcome to an extent and, and subdue our needs and our miseries. And one of the points of the three-point Rosicrucian manifesto to cure all disease and malady. So you see, there, there's this, there was this white magic that they, they, they believe by pursuing science and creating technology and to heal the kind of infirmities and to provide, satisfy human need. This was basically what they called white magic. What's gone wrong with the world is basically we have this technological world now and it's black magic. You've lost those spiritual values, which basically gave rise to the Enlightenment and the Renaissance in the first place. You have this kind of technological beast, this modern industrial machine that's destroying the planet. So, okay, the, the other dimension to magic is this. Okay, white magic, black magic was, was this. Okay, there's a, there's a very, very uh, kind of mysterious dimension to magic. Okay, what we've talked about so far is it's mundane, isn't it? It's just like creating technology. So what? Basically, you do science, you create technology. That's, you know, that's what happens in the world. There is this other dimension to magic, which was, really is magical, really is like scientifically magical. It, it, it involves serving humanity and serving, sedulously serving nature. It works like this. Look, if, if there really is a destiny wave function, if there really is, we are bouncing back to a set origin. It means there's a purpose to, to the universe, there's a purpose to society, there's the purpose to the process of nature. The highly mysterious dimension to magic is this. 
if you truly align your will to the will of the universe, to the will of nature, to the will of the progression of history, if your will is truly aligned in a completely unselfish way, then what will happen is you will find that the universe will conspire to help you realize your will. Now, unlike the kind of like new age law of attraction, the, the, you know, magic, I want to visualize my Mercedes Benz, I want to visualize checks coming through the post, I want to visualize my perfect partner, then I'll get it. That's really kind of like a debased magic that kind of new age gurus sell to kind of, you know, like uh, get people to come to their workshops. And if you didn't get your Mercedes Benz, you didn't get your pay rise, you didn't get your perfect partner, do law of attraction plus plus extra strength and you will. Okay, and this is like a born every minute. The kind of magic I'm talking about here is basically, it's not selfish. Basically, if you, if you truly align your will to the universe, then basically, if that will is to do with the historical progression, you will find that basically against all odds, basically, things will miraculously happen around you. The destiny wave function will basically make things happen around you to realize your destiny because your destiny has become part of the destiny of the universe. Then you truly become like magus renaissance magus true magician so do you get it it's a, it's a synthesis it's basically yes it is knowledge it is empowering itself through that knowledge through science and technology through through uh, social technology organizing society how you interact with people there is that dimension it is the, the spiritual dimension that you're doing this in order to gain kind of uh, you know spiritual transcendence a unity with godhead but at the same time there is this mysterious dimension where things will happen around you to realize your destiny and your will that's become aligned with the universe and it will seem completely miraculous because against all odds against all kind of like impossible uh you know opposition you will succeed in what you're going to do so in a nutshell that is magic that's great thanks um yeah there's so much <clears throat> so much to think about there that was a mini lecture wasn't it <laughs> you know it's great it was great um i just want to check uh, how much time you have um and, and whether we should uh cash the rest for part two or do you, have you got a few more minutes to to, to answer some more questions d i mean seriously i mean uh it, 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 it just feels like uh, 15 minutes we've been talking but we've been talking yeah. about an hour and a half, haven't we? Didn't we? <laughs> yeah an hour and a half yeah <laughs> oh, my, oh my word but, uh, do you know i think i think 90 minute uh concentration span is, is generally a kind of like um a, a kind of but we, we can uh, let's let's do one more question then we'll then we'll kind of like uh give give uh save the rest for an, another another session again great all right yeah let's, let's do that let, let me just let me just pick one then from my uh what do you um can say yeah another occasion um well I, th I think this leads on from what you were just saying really um and it's probably a a, a big finish kind of question so so how do you see this affecting culture and society? What, what's the great potential that you see? I, I mean, I'm a Green Party councillor, so it would be remiss of me to neglect the subject of our ecological crisis. Why are these kinds of ideas important to some of the very practical problems that we have as a civilization? Okay, that, 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 that's a huge question and the the answer is uh, again we we turn to history and what what uh, these these metaphysical cosmological assumptions what they led to okay one they led to you know the rise of science and technology but they also led to um a kind of um i guess ideas of utopia ideas of a better world they really led to a political revolution so, so i think in terms of what's happening in the planet today i think there is a kind of like uh, even 
we're not just talking left-wingers or Marxists or Trotskyists. We're talking people on the establishment, the right wing, you know, calling for something has to change. There needs to be some kind of reset, some kind of revolution, some kind of system change. And it's really across the board. It's not just, you know, kind of like uh, radicals anymore. It's basically even establishment figures recognizing basically we're heading off a cliff. So what I think the implication of these ideas are the same as what happened in history. Basically, they led to revolutionary movements. They basically led to the English Civil War. They led to um, the, uh, uh, the, the French and American revolutions. And I, I think it's what, what, what's, hap what's happening and what needs to happen. Somehow you need a kind of like peaceful transition. You need a kind of system change that can somehow satisfy left wing and right wing. So it's what, what I believe is that, um, you know, th there's not going to be a worldview or narrative that's going to be new, that's going to somehow, you know, get, you know, kind of, kind of uh, left-wing people, right-wing people, different people of all religions on board. It's not going to be a new worldview or, or, or a kind of new cosmology or new metaphysics. What you need to show is basically the metaphysics and cosmology behind Islam, behind the Renaissance, behind Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, Christianity, Judaism, etc. It's the same metaphysical, cosmological set of assumptions. And I think the new worldview really is a new narrative that can really bring about this great transition is really the return of the old. And if, if really uh, historically these, um, you know, the, these narratives of uh, kind of transition and utopia and narratives of essentially system change and revolution, if they worked historically, then I think um, in terms of the modern world, you have a kind of like a transition ideology that can satisfy the right wing because you know most establishment conservative right wingers they're not interested in when they talk about tradition they're not interested in taking things back to you know kind of feudal serfdom and kind of like a divine right of kings to rule and medieval times what they're interested in is the stuff that the original left wing i.e the, the kind of revolutionary left wing that merged from the enlightenment brought about i.e the modern world but then you also satisfy the left wing because you're saying, look, left wing, the left wing now today is embarrassing. It's basically, it's, it's lost. It's forgotten its own values, it's forgotten its own kind of assumptions. By reestablishing what the left wing was originally about, those metaphysical cosmological assumptions, which gave rise to the original left wing, the revolutionary left wing, then I, then I believe you can reconcile left wing and right wing and bring them to a common cause. If the left-wing and right-wing voices are calling for this great system change, great reset, great revolution, then I think really uh, these ideas have an implication for society in terms of, yes, system change, but also unity for bringing people together, which, you know, unfolding events in the Ukraine right now is exactly what the world needs. So I think, I think that the implication is, is uh, I think these ideas are critical for basically what many thinkers are saying needs to happen anyway but they can't find these solutions because they're working in academia they're working in little compartments working in little kind of boxes and basically what you're saying to these people look, look come out of the box and go into wider history and you then it's kind of like forgotten metaphysical cosmological assumption that basically your worldview was originally based on that's been lost if we can establish that through science mathematics and philosophy then you can, you can take people out of their boxes into this kind of wider box, into a kind of common cause. And I think that's really the key to uh, kind of, I, I guess, uh, you know, bridging these divisions in academia, but also in society, and then get all these kind of divided peoples to kind of like you know, do this kind of like peaceful 
system change that everyone's talking about needs to happen anyway. It's yeah. a lot to digest, isn't it? It's a lot to uh, unpack. No, that's that's great, and I think that's a, a perfect place to finish today. Um, yeah, yeah, really good. Yeah. So, okay, Amazing. so thank you, thank you, Wei, and and that was great. Um, thanks for all your work, and uh, I appreciate you. Uh, how how can people support and engage with your work? Where's the best place to find you on the interwebs? Uh, I, th I think I'll give you a kind of like a, a list of social media contacts. Sure. Uh, kind of JPEG, and then uh, yeah, we'll I, I guess I guess Facebook is good. I, I guess I got to get my social media uh, internet presence, uh, you know, together. Really, I mean, the, the mess. I'll, I'll tell you, tell you uh, what's happened. The coronavirus, COVID, has basically really um, accelerated the message that things have really finally come together in the past year, past two years. So, so really, I've been in kind of introvert hermit mode for, for, for the past two years, but it's really been getting the message together over the past 20 years. But really, it's, it's, it's kind of funny timing that we, we're getting together now because I'm on this kind of like verge of going into outward mode to communicate. So I'm really getting my social media and you know communication I guess uh, machinery into gear. So, but in the meantime, I'll I'll send you a list of uh, links you can share with with the audience. Yeah, great, and uh, we'll stick those underneath the video as they fantastic. Those, those YouTubers say, don't they? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> amazing, amazingly stimulating conversation. Again, when you're having fun and uh, you know engaged in these really interesting ideas, time just flies. I, I, it really just all of it feels like twenty minutes. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. 